you will, uh, take your Bibles and turn to, <clears throat> turn to Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 2, as we continue um, our series on the book of Jonah, and um, should have known that the songs that uh, Binge picked would have uh, left me a blubbering mess, but so it is sometime in God's kingdom. You come in rejoicing or you can come in a blubbering mess. Uh, both are acceptable uh, in the eyes of the Lord. Jonah chapter 2. We're actually going to begin at verse number 17 and then go down to Jonah 2.10. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that indeed this is your word. Once again, Lord, I thank you and I know our people thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together again as one body. Lord, even though there are many that are not here for various and sundry reasons, we look forward to the coming week of this worship and this fellowship. And now, O oh Lord, speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, this is your people, and this is your word. Connect them in a profound way today. May they walk out in love with you, and your word, and the power of your grace. May they understand it, may they love it, may they cherish it. 
In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, um, we looked at a major theme in the book of Jonah. And it's not only a major theme in the book of Jonah, it's actually a major theme in the Bible. And it's the theme of God's sovereignty and of God's providence. And we said God's sovereignty is God's right and God's power to do whatever he wants to do. He's in complete control of his creation. But we focus the majority of our attention on God's providence. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines providence or the works of God's providence are his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creations and their actions. And what that means for us as God's people is that God sees to it that in every aspect of your life, in every aspect of who you are, you are being shaped and made into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's a profound truth to know that everything that you've experienced in your life, from where you were born to who your parents were to to the language that you speak, every single experience, good, bad, or indifferent, was orchestrated by a holy God so that you can be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Well, pastor, even my struggles with sin? Yes. Pastor, even the horrible things that have happened in my life? Yes. Pastor, you mean everything? Yes. Was orchestrated and ordained by the wonderful providence of God, not to harm you, but ultimately for your good, to bring you into conformity to him and make you into the image of God. And look, I I say this knowing full well that many of you have experienced hard providence. I am not saying that the hard providence is the good. We talked about that last week. Those hard providence are a part of God's divine plan to bring about the ultimate good. That he has a purpose for suffering. That he has a purpose for everything that happens in your life. And we saw that in Jonah. We saw the way that everything that happened to Jonah, from the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, to Jonah being being hit by the storm, to Jonah desiring to flee from the presence of the Lord, all of that was underneath the sovereign, providential care of the Lord. That's what we looked at last week. Now, today, we're going to look at what God was up to, namely, to show Jonah grace. And I'm going to give you the big takeaway right up front, and it's this. Here's the big takeaway right up front. Jonah needed to be brought to a place where he understood God's grace so that he would be in another place to give it. Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites. He didn't. Why Why didn't Jonah want to go? Because he didn't understand God's grace. He didn't understand what God was doing. Why did Jonah flee from the presence of the Lord? Why did he say, God, I know you were gracious. That's why I didn't want to go, and I didn't want those Ninevites to be saved, because Jonah did not understand that he needed grace. And let me pause and say this up front. In your life as a Christian, you need to spend as much time possible understanding grace. You need to understand what it means. 
You need to understand why you need it. You need to understand how to receive it. And you need to understand how to give it. You need to understand grace and the profundity of grace. Because if you don't, you will be a graceless individual yourself. You'll be like the parable of uh, the servant, the unforgiving servant, who didn't understand grace and went out and immediately snatched up somebody uh, that owed him a little bit of money, didn't understand that he had been forgiven of so much. That's how we'll be. If you don't understand your profound need for grace, you will end up destroying the lives of not only yourself but others. Grace. Grace is at the center of Christianity. Grace is at the center of our faith. We've been given it, and we've been called to live in light of it, and we've also been called to extend it to others at every stretch or every part of our human existence. Grace, and that's what we're going to look at today. And I want to look at three things, three aspects of grace from chapter 2. The first one is this, the power of grace. The second one is the fruit of grace. In other words, what does this power produce? It produces tremendous fruit. And thirdly, I want to look at the mystery of grace. So the power of grace, the fruit of grace, and the mystery of grace. Notice with me in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The best way to describe this verse is I want you to think about something with me. Imagine you're going through a trail, and you happen upon a box, and you open the box, you break open the box, you, you flip open the box, and there's a note inside here and says, everything in this note belongs to you. And as you look through the box, you notice hundreds of thousands of dollars. You notice gold and jewelry and all sorts of expensive things. And you're wondering, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. You know, and you start piling it all in one spot and thinking about how you could get this off the mountain or wherever trail you're on. That's verse number 17. Verse number 17 is packed with so much information about grace, what it is, how you and I receive it, how we should live in light of it. This one verse accompanies all of that because it demonstrates the power of grace. Now, before we look at the power of grace, I want to do a little bit of systematic theology. Don't let that word scare you, right? I want to show you four things the Bible says about grace. And these are critical for you to understand what grace is, how you receive it, and how you live in light of it. Four things I want to tell you about grace. The first thing that the Bible tells us about grace is you cannot work for it. You cannot work for grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that word gift is important because we understand that there's a difference between gift and work or wages, right? Imagine if you got paid from your boss and, and after you got paid, you called up your boss and you said, or write him a letter, or whoever it is, and you write them a letter and said, thank you so much for my salary. I, I just appreciate it. You didn't have to, but I'm so glad that you did. Now I can feed my family. Now, if you did that, every time you got paid, two things would happen. Number one, your boss would think you're crazy and you'd be fired. 
But number two, your boss would think you're being sarcastic and you would get fired. So anyway, you would end up getting fired, right? Why? Because we all know the difference between working for something and receiving something as a gift. Your boss is obligated to pay you. He's obligated, he or she is obligated to pay you for your labor. Here's something you need to understand, grace. God is not obligated to give it to you. God is not obligated to give it to you. That's why you can't work for it. And in fact, it, it's so costly, there is no amount of work you can put in to receive it. And so the first thing you need to know about grace is you cannot work for it because God is not obligated to give it to you. The second thing you need to know about grace is that you can't buy it. You also cannot buy grace. I remember several years ago, um, I, was in, I, I was doing some work and studying for a Bible study, and somehow I ran across an article on eBay with people selling their souls and other people buying it. And that's what it dawned on me. We live in a crazy time where people think that they can buy anything. Really? You're going to buy somebody's soul? And then actually somebody bought it? I thought, how ridiculous is this? Maybe I could sell my soul, right? You know, tell people like, hey, I'll give you $1,000. Now look, we all know that we can't buy a soul. Well, do you know you cannot buy grace? In 2 Kings 5, Naaman came to Elijah, and he told Elijah, he said, Elijah, I want you to heal me. Elijah said, okay, dip yourself in the Jordan. He's indignant. He's like, what? I have better, I have better uh, uh, springs in Syria. And, this, and, and thankfully, he had a slave that calmed him down and said, go and do what Elijah told you to do. So he, he goes and do it. And what does he do right after? Like after he dips himself, oh, you all remember the story, right? His skin came back like a baby's skin. And he was completely healed. It was wonderful. And so what does he do? He comes back and he tries to give Elijah tribute money because he was so thankful. And Elijah told him, no, I don't want it. Now why, why didn't Elijah want it? Because grace isn't for sale. You can't buy grace. It's not for sale. And that's why when Elijah left him and Gehazi came back and told Naaman, yes, I'll take the money, and he goes back and he hides it, Elijah comes to him and said, what, what did you do? You've messed up this man's theology. I was trying to show him that the grace of God is for free. And now you, he walked away thinking that he has to pay for it. How disastrous is that? So immediately, Elijah says, you know what? You are cursed with leprosy, and your children are cursed with leprosy. Now, we read that story, and we think, how awful is that? No, 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 no. What's awful is a theology that thinks that we can purchase grace. You cannot purchase grace. Your, your tithes do not come with you. I hope you don't think when you tithe, you're paying for grace. You're not paying for grace. A tithe is an outflow of your love for God that you give because you love God and you want to serve him. You want to give to his work. Anything you do for God, anything you give for God, you're not purchasing grace because that's not how it works. Grace is a gift to be given free. Now, the third thing the Bible tells us about grace that's so important for us to know is this. 
You cannot merit grace by your actions. Now let me say, there is a number of things in our world you can merit rightly by your actions. You know, there are some of us that know people who are teacher of the year. Well, they deserve that award because they're good teachers. Many inside here, our students, I was so proud of them this last cycle. Many of them won awards in their classes. Our students cleaned up. It was wonderful, right? I didn't have anything to do with it, but it was wonderful to watch. Now, all of them deserve that because they worked hard for it, and they deserve it. Think of a Medal of Honor, right? A Medal of Honor. A Medal of Honor recipient deserves the medal that they got. And we should give them this medal. But hear me today, grace doesn't work the same way. You cannot merit grace. You cannot work for it. It doesn't matter how good you are. You don't receive grace that way. You might receive a medal for being a medal uh, for bravery, and that's great. But you don't receive grace by bravery. You receive grace by faith. This is why it's so important for us to understand that we don't receive grace by working for it, paying for it, or being good. It is so important for you to understand that. Because otherwise, that leads to immense self-righteousness and a burden that you are unable to bear. So pastor, if I can't, if I can't work for it, if I can't pay it, if I can't um, be good enough to receive it, merit it, then how do we get grace? What is grace? Well, grace is simply put, is God's unmerited favor toward you. His love, the outpouring of his love, his generosity, that it's completely unmerited given to you. Well, pastor, how does that look? Well, here, I'll give you another quick story. Imagine for a moment, I'm asking you to imagine a lot, but that's okay. It's good to use our imagination. Imagine for a moment, you have an awful boss. Now, some of you are looking at me. I don't need to imagine that, Pastor. That's, that, I'm living that reality now. Okay. But imagine for a moment that you have an awful boss who's always trying to get you fired, who, who lies about you, who never has anything good to say about you, and always gives you the, the, the most awful jobs. And this has been the case for years. And all of a sudden, he gets fired and you do a happy dance. But then you find out a few months later that your boss who got fired has a really bad cancer. And because he was such or she was such a horrible person, their, their wife and their children or spouse left them. And you find out they mismanaged all of their money, and now are living in object poverty. And then imagine, amidst all of that, that this person is contemplating, you find out they're so destitute, they're, they, they're contemplating suicide. And in that moment, your heart is pricked, and you rally the troops on this person's behalf. And you go to them, and you give them food, and you go to them, and you give them money and you say I will pay all of your bills I know someone a doctor who's a specialist in your particular area of cancer that can help you works pro bono I'm gonna work to have you and your spouse enter counseling so you could go back and you do all of these things right and at the end of it you say to this person I know you've wronged me but I forgive you and I love you because you're made in the image of God 
And this person looks at you and just starts weeping and hold you and you're crying. That's great. Your boss didn't work for that. Your boss wasn't good enough, obviously, to get it. Your boss uh, didn't, didn't try and pay for that because they had nothing, right? That's great. And hear me today. You understand grace when you identify more with the boss in that story than the worker. That's when you know you understand grace. If you heard that story and thought, yeah, I could see myself reaching out and helping my boss, then you've missed the point of that illustration. The point of that illustration isn't that you're the coworker. The point of that illustration is you're the boss. You're the one that needs the help. You're the one that's so poor, you can't work. You're so destitute, so sick, you can't work for it. So poor, you can't deserve it. So bad, you can't earn it by your goodness. That all you do is receive it when it comes your way. That's grace. And in that, we see the power of grace. And that's what verse 17 is. Verse 17 shows you the power of grace. Jonah was in such a bad place, he was unable to save himself. Jonah was, was destitute. He was about to drown. He was about to die. And if it were not for God appointing a great fish to come to Jonah and save Jonah, he would have died. That's the power of grace. That's how we receive grace, simply by God reaching out to us and bringing us in the fold. This is why theologians often describe God's grace, the power of God's grace, as irresistible grace. This is a part of the tulip that we call irresistible grace. Now, what is irresistible grace? R.C. Sproul gives probably the best definition for irresistible grace that I've ever heard. And here's what he said, because this is so, so important. He said, irresistible grace is the idea that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. But he goes on to say, it is not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. That's not what God does. Here's what God does instead. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills. So that, whereas we were previously unable to embrace Christ, now we are willing. And more than that, we are more willing. Do you hear what he's saying? That the power of God's grace isn't that the Holy Spirit grabs you kicking and screaming to Jesus. But that the Holy Spirit works within you to change your natural sinful inclinations, so that you might want Jesus freely as he's seen in the gospel. That's what's happening to Jonah. Now, how, does the, how do we know that the Holy Spirit's changed our inclinations? Well, that's why we go to point number two as we talk about the fruit of this grace. And notice that in chapter two. There's so many aspects of chapter two. But, you know, if you're looking for a Bible study this week, Looking for some way to study the Bible this week. Here, here I, I have a beautiful one. Study the use of the Psalms in Jonah 2. It's phenomenal. There are, there are all sorts of allusions. Psalm 30, Psalm 50, Psalm 42. I mean, there, it's just everywhere permeating through Jonah chapter 2. In fact, if you read Jonah chapter 2, you can hear the echoes of the Psalms everywhere. But, but there are four things in this Psalm where we see clearly, we see clearly, 
Jonah's repentance, the fruit of God's grace in his life. Jonah having a complete change of heart and mind. The first is this. Notice with me in verse number three. Jonah says, for you, for you, mean you, the reference there of you is the Lord, Yahweh. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood waters surrounded me. What, what is happening here? Jonah goes from thinking about himself as sovereign to thinking about God as sovereign. That's how you know you've had a change of heart and mind. If you're sitting down there still thinking that you're the captain of your own soul, the master of your own ship, and nobody can tell you how to live or what to think or, or where to go, if you're still sitting there with this individualistic sovereign idea in your mind that only you can chart your own course, then you haven't fully repented. Because one of the fruits of genuine repentance is when you submit to the will of God and not your own will. Second, notice in verse number four and seven, and this to me is just so beautiful and significant. Jonah says in verse number four, here's the second reason why uh, we see the fruit of repentance, uh, the fruit of God's grace. He says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your temple. And the same language again is used in verse number seven. Now, why is that significant? Think with me for a moment, the holy temple of God, from a biblical theological perspective, from Genesis to Revelation, the temple of God is the place where God is. And Jonah is saying, God, don't, don't, don't reject me from your temple. Do you see the irony of this? This book started off with Jonah running away from God. And now Jonah is telling God, God, don't run away from me. That's repentance. sin. When you can name your sin clearly, and you can drill down the exact ways you're sinning, it's only then that you begin to come to a place where you can fully repent before the Lord. Look, stop confessing general sin. God knows you're a sinner. 
but move beyond that and start confessing specific sins. How is it that your heart is moving away from Yahweh? And notice the final thing in verse number 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of what can only be a tumultuous time in Jonah's life, a difficult time, a hard time, a, a, a manifestation of God's severe mercy, what is he doing? He is being joyful and have a spirit of thanksgiving. That's a sign of grace. Do you know how hard it is to be joyful in the midst of struggle? Do you know how difficult it is for us to rejoice and give God thanks when things are going bad? It's really easy to do it when things are going your way. But think about how difficult it is for you as an individual to rejoice when your life is topsy-turvy. Jonah's life is topsy-turvy. He almost drowned and he's in the belly of a fish. It just can't get any worse than that. But here it is, him rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Because of God's grace. It takes the grace of God to produce rejoicing in the midst of struggle. Right? Now, I want to end by talking about the mystery of God's grace. The mystery of God's grace. Notice the mystery of God's grace in verse number 10. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, actually. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Now, now the, the word vomit in the Bible, yes, I've looked it up, right? In general, when the use of the word vomit, when you see that word used in the Bible, it means disgust. It means disgust. It's a picture of disgust, right? That God is rejecting a people. That's what it means in our life, right? If you go to a restaurant, somebody said how it was, and you said, oh, I just vomited up my veal. You know what they're not going to do? Go to that restaurant and order what you have, right? Because we don't think of vomit as a good thing. Vomit is a sign of malady. Now, isn't it interesting that the last thing in chapter 2 that records Jonah's repentance ends with Jonah being vomited up, the sign of that there's something wrong, that God's disgust. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how is it that Jonah repents? God's grace leads him to that. But yet God is still showing this disgust, as if you will, towards Jonah. Is that possible? Is that incongruous? Or, or can they be reconciled? Absolutely they can be reconciled if you understand, and pardon the pun, that grace is messy. Grace is messy. Did you know that? It's interesting, if you read through Jonah's repentance, you know the one thing that Jonah doesn't mention in his repentance? Anything about the Ninevites. He didn't repent from running away from God's assignment. He didn't, repent. he didn't ask the Lord to give him strength to go to Nineveh. All of that is missing. And by the way, that's at the core of what he needs to be repenting of. So this is a telltale sign to you and I that Jonah still has some problems. And, all, and just read ahead. Read ahead to chapter 4. You'll realize that Jonah's repentance even here was incomplete. What does that tell you and I? That oftentimes our repentance is incomplete. What does this communicate to the people of God? That, that grace is messy. It's messy. 
that people, even though they proclaim the Lord and even though they repent, they still have a lot more to repent of. And that even Jonah, even though he gives this wonderful expression of a heart and a mind that's repented, he still has the residual stain of sin that the Holy Spirit still needs to be working on. You know, in Mark 8, 24, Jesus heals a man. And when the man is healed, we are told in Scripture that that's a partial healing. He says, I see men like trees. And for the longest, I wondered, what is going on there? Like, why did Jesus heal him part way, and then all of a sudden had to go back and heal him again? And, and as I was studying this passage, my, the Holy Spirit brought that to mind, and I started studying that passage as well, and it finally hit me that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples that even though you can see, you only see part way. That even though you've been walking with me, the glory and majesty of God, you only understand that halfway, and there's so much more to be done. Do you have a vision of grace big enough to say that even though people are Christians, they're still broken? Do you have a vision of grace big enough to say that even though people have repented, they still have more repenting to do? You know, I mentioned I gave the big takeaway at the very beginning, but I have another big takeaway, and it's this. Grace is, is a messy process that requires patience and endurance. When Jesus died on the cross for you and I, he said it is finished, and we should believe him because the work of grace on the cross and what it accomplished has been done, but that work of grace is not completed in you. And it's not completed in your neighbor. And until, unless and until we as the church, we as the people of God, come to an understanding that you need grace in order for you to extend others' grace, we will continue to spin our wheels. Next time you are tempted to be graceless toward one another, remember your need for grace. The next time you're tempted to judge and complain about others, remember your need for grace. The next time you're tempted to wash your hands of the people of God, remember that God didn't wash his hands of you. But instead, he leaned in. And we need to lean in. This is the message of Jonah 2. He's messy. He's incomplete. God still wants to use him. And he still has more repenting to do. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, what a sweet reminder of your grace, even in the Old Testament. Clearly, within the pages of your word. Lord, we see it plainly that Jonah was in desperate need of your grace. He received it, but even though he received it, he still had more work to do. You still had more work to do in his life. And in the coming weeks, as we see you doing that work, help our hearts to be convicted. Help us to see that we're Jonah. We need grace in order to extend grace. We need grace in order to be gracious toward ourselves. Please, Lord, help us to see that and help us to receive your grace freely, freely as offered in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.